Last week, we looked at the Pentecost scene, the promised gift of the Spirit, and we saw that it fulfilled John the Baptist's prophecy. John the Baptist had prophesied that one would come after him who would baptize in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So it right, attended with these supernatural signs. Pentecost is the beginning of the undoing of Babel. The restoration of Israel spoken of in the prophets. And eventually the summoning of the divided nations to unity. Put differently, maybe summarizing, we could say Pentecost is the beginning of the descent of the cosmic temple that will come down out of heaven from God at the end of the age. It's the beginning, Pentecost, of the consummate dwelling place of God being with his people. It is the Holy Spirit coming to dwell, and thus the Holy Trinity coming to dwell in fullness, in his house, in his temple, in the church. And as we saw, Pentecost is a once-for-all foundational event. But its implications, right, because we are always a Pentecostal people, its implications reverberate all the way down through the history of the church, even to the coming day of the Lord, of which it is the beginning. So, you'll recall that upon the coming of the Spirit... And hearing the mighty works of God spoken in their own languages, there's all this amazement. There's perplexity. The assembled crowd is saying to one another, what does this mean? Some are mocking, saying they're babbling, they're full of new wine. And this sets the stage for our text this morning, which is the opening portion of the first apostolic sermon ever. The first public preaching after the ascension of Christ, and thus the first Christian sermon. You shouldn't need anything more than that to tell you the importance of this text. Hundreds of years of waiting, 800 years of prophecy, right? thousands of years if you go back to God's election of Abraham, and what is the first thing the chosen leader of the apostolic band proclaims in public, that's what you get to hear today. Now, remember, Luke tells us that, he tells us this in the first verse of the book of Acts. He says that in his gospel, he was, it was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. But Acts, which is Luke's second volume, right? It's like a two-volume work, Luke and Acts. The second volume is about what Jesus now ascended, the ascended Jesus, is continuing to do and teach. And that teaching of the ascended Jesus comes through the mouths of the apostles. And it comes in large part through their sermons, through their speeches throughout the book. And there's a lot of these, so I want to just say a word about it in this today, this morning. These speeches are clearly not all that was said on a given occasion. For example, we're in Acts chapter 2. If you go all the way down to verse 40 in Acts chapter 2, you're told this, And with many, 
many other words, he bore witness and he exhorted them. So what we have in the speeches are, are Luke's reliable and is inspired summaries of these events, which he would have learned either from the speakers themselves, right, or from eyewitnesses, or from his own attendance at some of these events. He knew and traveled with Paul. Now, so the importance of this public preaching and teaching witness should not be underestimated. There are, depending on how you count, something like 19 significant Christian public addresses in the book of Acts. And that material takes up 25% of the text of the book. It's a long book. 25% of it is preaching. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And this morning we have the high privilege of being at the fountainhead, the source, the origin of apostolic proclamation. So with that, I want to make two points. They're there on the, on the outline in your bulletin. The last days and the spirit. So Peter lifts up his voice. He addresses the assembled crowd. Right away, we're told something. The, the, the verb that's used here for, for addressing, Peter addressed the crowd. It's the same verb that was used earlier of the disciples being given utterance or being enabled to speak in other tongues. Right? And so this suggests that Peter himself is now speaking by the inspiration of that same spirit. So these are inspired apostolic sermons. Right? And he begins, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. We should not glide over this for a number of reasons. First, notice, to state the obvious, he's speaking to Jews. Those of Judea, local Jews, and those who dwell temporarily for the sake of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So he's speaking to Jews from Israel, and as we saw last week, Jews from every nation under heaven. So Jewish residents, Jewish pilgrims. The gift of the Spirit. We have to be careful not to get ahead of ourselves as Gentile readers of the book of Acts. The gift of the Spirit, like the gospel preaching that is about to come, is to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile or the Greek. They are the root We Gentiles are the branches. And the whole program of the book of Acts, right, outlined in chapter 1, verse 8, begins by witnessing in Jerusalem and Judea, and then, in due time, to the ends of the earth. And we see that here. He addresses the men of Judea, the residents in Jerusalem. And then after brushing aside the ludicrous suggestion that these people are drunk, he says in verse 16, this, now again, Pentecost has just happened. The fire has come down. By this, Peter means the Pentecost event. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The first words of all Christian preaching are a citation from the minor prophets. That might affect your Bible reading. 
straight to the word of God. Right? Peter has no introduction. He's got no material to warm the crowd up. He's got no personal testimony to share. He's got no jokes. It's this is Joel. Now, you're sitting there at Pentecost and this fire comes down. Do you think this is Joel? Now, he's doing it by the Spirit, of course, but he's not an empty vessel. He's a fisherman who knows the law and the prophets. And he immediately connects in the Spirit the fire from heaven and some minor prophet named Joel, the second chapter of Joel. I mean, who would have thought that Joel chapter 2 would be a decisive text in the history of redemption? The first text proclaimed in the Christian era. Know your minor prophets, people. They may be a lot more important than you think. Well, Peter does. He gets this right away. He sees its relevance almost instantly under the Spirit, under the Spirit's anointing, and he proceeds to cite the prophet Joel at length. Verse 17, he says this. So he tells you what book he's going to invoke. And in the last days it shall be God declares. Now, I'm a little excited about this, I must admit. Because I want you to notice that the first word, the first preached word of the whole Christian era is an eschatological word. In the last days. Boom. The end at the beginning. The gift of the Spirit means the last days, the end of the age, and thus the end of the world are at hand. By the way, in Joel, it just says after this. Peter changes it. Peter changes it to in the last days. The last days are not about trying to discern geopolitical events or connect the dots of the news to Bible prophecy. They're not about trying to predict the coming of Christ. The last days began when Jesus appeared, when he was raised from the dead, when he was ascended, and when he sends the Spirit. They began at the appearance of Christ. They will end when he appears again. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And we need to learn to think as people who live in the last days. And that means to think theologically and not chronologically. The last days mean the end is near, it's at hand. And the New Testament repeatedly says this of the Christian community. Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke in many ways in the past to our fathers, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the end of the ages has fallen upon the Christian church. James warns the rich against the coming fire of God's judgment and says, you have laid up your treasure in the last days. Paul says in the last days there will be much trouble and men will go from bad to worse. Peter says scoffers will come in the last day scoffing, asking, where is the promise of his coming? Everything seems the same to me. This is why 
The New Testament repeatedly tells us the end of all things is at hand. The judge is at the door. The Lord is near. The resurrection of the dead at the end of the age is already underway because Christ, the first fruits of that resurrection, has been raised. The final judgment is already beginning. Judgment begins now with the house of God, Peter tells us. The first word in the Christian era is an eschatological word, in the last days. Do you know how Paul charges Timothy to preach in 2 Timothy 4? He charges him after writing two letters to him. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So far, we're like, well, that's fine. I mean, you would charge a preacher to preach in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Who is to judge the living and the dead? That's the Christ I charge. And by his appearing and his coming, preach the word in season and out. So Paul says to Timothy, your whole preaching charge starts in light of the eschaton. I charge you in the presence of the Christ who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and by his coming kingdom, I charge you in that light, preach the word. Preaching has about it from the beginning the fire of the eschaton or there's something fundamentally wrong with it. And Peter gets that. Christ is the last Adam, literally the eschatos Adam. He brings the end into our time. And the spirit of that Christ is poured out in the last days because the spirit, we're told later in the New Testament, is the power of the age to come. It's God's own heavenly, indestructible life. The new world, the new age, the new creation are breaking in. The old age, the old world, the old order is passing away. And the period of that overlap, the period of the church's historical life, that is the last days. All of this Peter has got packed into his opening phrase. And these Old Testament prophets, not just Joel, but for example Hosea, They foresaw the latter times, and they foresaw that Israel, scattered among the nations, would be restored to the land, brought together in unity under a Davidic king, and eventually joined by Gentiles from those same nations, right? They saw that that the Gentiles would be included in the fulfillment of all the covenant promises, grafted into the rich vine of Israel. Right? The prophets are constantly seeing the last days. In the last days, Isaiah and Micah say, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up, chief among the mountains. And the nations will stream into it, and they'll be instructed by the law of God. Those days, the days of the messianic glory, the days of the age to come, the days of the end, those days are at hand, and they are signaled by the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit is making, if you will, a monumental statement to the world. Jesus Christ is ascended and enthroned as King. And He's now gathering the nations, and the end of all things is at hand. The prophets tended, of course, 
to see just one big messianic explosion as they look to the future. And of course, we know now that it turns out to be two phases or two movements, two advents. And those two advents bracket this time, the last days. So the last days, the end of the age has arrived and Jesus tells his disciples, I will be with you to the end of the age, meaning to the end of the end of the age. How will Jesus be with us to the end of the age? Well, that brings me to the second point, which is the spirit, the spirit. So if you look at the text, you'll see that what is Peter, what is Peter citing from Joel? Joel predicted that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. First, like, notice the language of pouring out. Right? It's, it's abundant. It's, it's an abundant language. Right? God is not meager. He doesn't give you the minimal amount of the spirit that you need. There's an abundance. There's a profusion. There's a downpour of divine generosity. It's a new covenant gift of the spirit. We're not denying that the Spirit was at work before this, but this is greater in glory. It's greater in fullness. It's greater in power. It's greater in extent than anything experienced under the Old Covenant. The ministry of the Spirit, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, far exceeds the glory of the ministry of Moses. Notice, notice then a few Things about this definitive gift of the future in the Spirit. It is lavished, we're told, it is poured out on all flesh. All flesh. Now, all here does not literally mean all. Otherwise, everyone would be baptized in the Spirit. It means Jews and Gentiles. Here it means the Jews gathered from among the nations. And soon that will include Gentiles from among the same nations. All flesh. The gift of the Spirit is Catholic, small c, meaning universal. No longer restricted to some people in one nation as before. And this means all of God's people, all of you, have been baptized in the Spirit and have been made to drink of the Spirit. No one can confess, Paul says, that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. We'll see this more, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, but I'll just state it now. There's no such thing as a distinct second blessing of spirit baptism after conversion. All Christians are Pentecostal Christians. All Christians have received the Pentecostal spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile. The spirit is given, the text says, to God's people, notice this, regardless of sex, to men and to women alike, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That is, they will publicly speak forth spirit-inspired declarations of the wonders of God, even as Peter is prophesying here. Sons and daughters. For there were, as we saw, women in the company present when the Spirit fell in the upper room. Again, the point here is not that every last person will be a prophet. But that prophesying will be pervasive. And it will be pervasive among men and among women in the New Covenant. 
In the Old Testament, Hannah, well, let's go back before that. Miriam was a prophetess in the Old Testament. Hannah prophesied. Huldah was a prophetess, a female prophetess in the court of the king in 2 Kings. Deborah was a prophetess. Anna is noted as a prophetess in the temple in Luke's infancy narrative. And Mary certainly speaks prophetically with her Magnificat. So there's a rich precedent for women speaking the word of God. But Peter says in the New Testament, you're going to see this with greater profusion in the last days. And in Acts itself, we will see four daughters of Philip, all prophetesses. And we will see women later in the New Testament clearly praying and prophesying in public at the church in Corinth. This is a great democratization of the life of God. I know there's questions. I get it. This is a great democracy. It's part of the appeal of Christianity to women then and now. The gift of the Spirit does not follow the rules of the patriarchy. He blows wherever he wills, and it turns out, Peter says, he's going to blow on men and women, unbound by our conventions or the traditions of men. Sons and daughters are both now full members of the royal priesthood. I often think we we underplay the significance of this. This means they both have direct, unmediated access, apart from any human hierarchy, to the heavenly sanctuary. That's the grand prize in Christian religion. Face-to-face communion with God in the highest heavens. And men and women now have it. The only mediator between God and his people is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters are now anointed priests and kings. And now with the Pentecostal spirit, they're anointed prophets. The spirit does not discriminate on the basis of sex. Nor does the spirit discriminate on the basis of your age. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Male and female, young and old, the Spirit is given to them all. And finally, the text says, the Spirit does not discriminate on the basis of your class or your social status. I always say that's why this is the most egalitarian meal in the world. There are no hierarchies or pecking orders there. The Spirit does not discriminate on the basis of class or social status. And here, for good measure, Peter mentions gender again. Even on my male and female servants. The culture may view them as slaves or household servants, but God dignifies them with the title, my servants, male and female. In those days, Peter says, What days? The last days, the days we're talking about. In those days, I will pour out profusely my spirit on them, and they shall prophesy. We're told it twice in the text. That both men and women shall prophesy in the new covenant era. Now, long before this, 
long before this, before Joel, Moses, in our Old Testament lesson from Numbers 11, had the Spirit taken from him by the Lord, and at the tent of meeting, it was distributed to 70 elders to assist Moses, right? The 70 elders, upon receiving the Spirit, prophesied. And as you heard the story, there were two others, not at the tent of meeting. And these two others also received the Spirit, and they prophesied. And Joshua is jealous to protect the honor of Moses, right? His, his, his honor of Moses as mediator. Joshua protests that these two guys, they weren't in the authorized place. Right? They didn't follow the right order. They should be forbidden to prophesy. And you heard Moses' reply to him, which is really quite startling. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Right? Moses wants all the Lord's people to be prophets. All the Lord's people to be anointed with the abundance of the spirit. He wants everyone to participate in this gift. And what he prayed for, what he wished for, and what Joel prophesied about, Peter announces, this is now at hand. Men and women, young and old, male and female servants of the Lord, and soon Jew and Gentile, on them, on all flesh, the Spirit is lavished. And they become vehicles, instruments of the revelation of God of dreams, of vision, of prophecy. Right? We're not talking about administrative gifts here as wonderful as those are. These are public revelatory gifts. So, there are two things we can learn from this text. More than two, I'm sure, but I want to focus on two. The first is, it is now the last days. It has been the last day since the coming of Christ, and it shall be the last days till the end of the age when Christ comes in glory. Sometimes I get asked, I'm sure you do too, do you think we're in the end times? Now, usually I could say, well, I think we've been in them for 2,000 years. But usually the person means something like, are we in the last days of the last days? About which... Let me state publicly, I have no idea. But it's of little to no import if we understand that we always already live at the end, in the last days. If we grasp that the coming kingdom has already broken into our time. If we grasp that the gift of the Spirit is an eschatological gift, the first fruits of the full harvest at the end of the age, a pledge, a down payment of your full future inheritance. In short, to grasp what it means for the Spirit to be given in the last days is to become an eschatological person. A person who grasps what it means to live out of Christ in and through the Spirit is a person who grasps that we live a heavenly existence out of the age to come. And this is Christian sanity. Right? It saves you from two errors. The first is from all of these crazed end-time predictions which never come true and speculations. But it also saves us from a Christianity that's too worldly, that collapses the kingdom of God into 
whatever particular cultural, political battle we happen to be involved in at the moment. Right? We need a Christianity which is pervaded by the fire of the end in every fiber of its being. That's what, that's what Paul is after with Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Right? I charge you to preach the word in season and out by the Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing. Preach out of that. It's the first thing. The gift of the Spirit in the last days is meant to make you into a person who lives out of the age to come while living in this age. Another way to put this, and it's always hard to grasp this, I understand. And, and none of us does it well. It's, it's counterintuitive. But what we want to say is that Christians live in this age, in this world, in this historical time, in something of a refracted way. Right? As people who are already dead and lifted up and raised with Christ and seated in the heavens and then are still living right here in Rock Tavern. But if you just go straight to the Rock Tavern part with a little divine assistance, you misconstrue the basic structure of Christian existence. So yes, we live in the world. But we live in the world in an indirect, refracted way as citizens of another country. And that's what it means for the Spirit to be given to us in the last days. Secondly, the second thing we can learn from the text is it's a passage which should stir up in us a desire for all to deploy all their spiritual gifts. The passage is profoundly democratic. It's egalitarian in one sense because it breaks a lot of our stereotypes. For all, all here, in the, anyway, in this text, all, and remember, we're at the fountainhead of the New Covenant. Like this is, We're not just picking a text that happens to be splattered somewhere in the New Testament. We're talking about the first thing said by an apostle in the New Covenant era. Here, all, male and female, young and old, they get the same highly prized revelatory gifts. As I said, these are not some of the other gifts, right? Peter does not say women get womanly gifts while men get manly gifts. All flesh gets the same exalted order of gift here. Otherwise, you're guilty of pigeonholing the spirit. Again, I know there's a lot of questions But I personally think the text requires some rethinking and movement outside of our little traditional boxes. But leaving that aside, we need to see the saints. That means little saints and older saints, male saints and female saints. We need to see them as gifted, anointed members of the royal priesthood. Or what we might call the prophethood of all believers. If you have kids, you know your four-year-old can come up and speak a prophetic word to you. And you better, you better submit to it. <laughs> you know, something along the lines of, why are, you, why are you doing that, Daddy? Or something like that. Right? Anyone in the body can speak the word of God to you. Anyone in the body can have a gift that you need. And vice versa. You can do it too. But young or old, male or female. There's a prophethood of all believers. That's true, we're not all prophets, but we all partake of the prophetic spirit and can speak the word of God to one another in an encouraging way. We can stand side by side and declare the wonderful works of God, the praises of the one who by his Pentecostal spirit has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In these last days, 
The Spirit is given to all for this. Amen.